we definitely need to have diverse voices and opinions uh, when it comes to development interventions. The sector has just been long plagued with with well-meaning people who think that they know the best solutions for others. And you need people who are really able to immerse themselves and understand the culture and not just sort of come in and be the the savior and say like we know what we're doing and here's what what we're going to do because that that often fails hey everyone Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. This podcast centers Black women and also explores living abroad as a pathway to wellness and wellness in all of its many forms, financial, professional, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Welcome to the show and welcome back if you're returning. I am Christine Job, the host of Flourish in the Foreign, and I am a Black American expat living and thriving in Spain. I am not only the host, but also the creator the producer, and everythinger of this here podcast. This podcast truly is a labor of love, but, you know, labor nonetheless. And that is why I am asking you all to please support this podcast. Now, there are five ways for you to support Flourish in the Foreign. The first way is to become a Patreon supporter of Flourish in the Foreign. You can go to www.patreon.com slash flourish foreign. And there's no minimum or maximum that you can contribute with Patreon. You can give as little as you want or as much as you want. It's whatever feels comfortable for you that you can sustain in a monthly way. It's an amazing way for you to support Black business, Black creatives, Black women creatives. If you love this podcast, I strongly urge you to just become a Patreon supporter. And as a Patreon supporter, you get more access to me. If there's something you want to see, if you check out the tiers and you're like, I want some other benefits, you could tell me because you're a Patreon supporter. Again, you can go to www.patreon.com slash flourish foreign. The second way to support this podcast is by Cash App. You can cash app the podcast at dollar sign flourish foreign. And Cash App truly is a tip jar. So if you're listening to an episode that really moves you, if you've been listening for a while and you're like, this is the jam, like I love this podcast, you can go ahead and slide the podcast a couple of bucks via Cash App. It's also a really great way to contribute to the podcast if you're not ready to make an ongoing monthly commitment. So you can go ahead and cash app the podcast at dollar sign flourish foreign and shout out to our most recent cash app contribution, which was by Nicholas. Shout out to Nicholas. Hey, thank you so much, Nicholas, for cash apping the podcast. I appreciate you. 
I appreciate you and thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you so much for just believing and supporting in the elevation of Black women, our stories, our perspectives, and the fact that, you know, we out here, we're doing it. So thank you, thank you. The third way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is by placing an ad within this podcast or sponsoring an entire episode. If you have an organization or a business that's in alignment with this podcast and you would love to get in front of an incredible audience of ambitious, educated, and internationally minded women, go ahead to Flourish in the Foreign's website, www.flourishintheforeign.com slash contact and drop me a line. I will send you over the rate sheet and we can go from there. The fourth way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is, of course, sharing the podcast with the people that you love and the people that you know. Share the podcast with your network. It is, again, so important. Your personal recommendation is your seal of approval, and that is worth so much more than any marketing that I could possibly do. So help out Flourish in the Foreign and share the podcast. Of course, tag the podcast at Flourish Foreign across all social media channels. The fifth way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is, of course, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast, that you have given the podcast a five-star rating, and that you have left a review. And of course, you're following the podcast across all social media channels. That is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Flourish Foreign. And now I'm going to read another lovely review from one of our amazing audience members. And again, I love them. I always say it, but it really does make my day. It makes my whole week when I read these. So please keep them coming. This one is from MK Haas. Inspiring. What a beautiful podcast. The format allows for a deep dive into the guest story and her experiences abroad as a black woman. Very personal, raw, and inspiring. Can't wait for more episodes. Yes. Thank you, MK Haas. I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening to the podcast, supporting the podcast, and leaving a review for the podcast. Okay. I just gave you all five ways to support Flourish in the Foreign, and I hope you have chosen at least one way to support this podcast today. All right. On to the next episode. This week's guest is Morgan. And Morgan and I have a very special connection. Our mothers have been best and dear friends for, I don't know, 30 years? Something like that. And our mothers met each other while they were abroad in the Air Force. And now their daughters are abroad, not with the Air Force, but, you know, living our expat lives. So this one was actually a really, really special recording. And I think that Morgan's experience working in international development, being pregnant abroad, raising a family abroad, and doing so much meaningful and important work on the continent of Africa, I think is going to be so interesting for you. But I'm going to let her tell you all about it. 
I'm Morgan Limo. I am 30-something years old, and I'm currently living in Kampala, Uganda. I am originally from Chicago, Illinois, and I traveled abroad a few times from a younger age. I think the first time I got my passport, I was 15. However, in terms of moving permanently abroad, I was 28. I am a child of parents who were in the military. Both of my parents were in the Air Force, and they served abroad. Even when I was a child, my mom was stationed overseas, and I ended up staying with my grandmother in Chicago. But they had sort of, as I was growing up, really prioritized eating the cultural foods that they had grown to love. They were stationed in Korea, and so they would eat kalbi and bulgogi. And exposing me to those foods and things at a young age sort of just sparked my interest in learning more about other cultures and languages. I was someone who studied French from around middle school. And I realize now that I sort of just chose to study French because I grew up around a lot of Black, African-Americans, Latinos, and everyone spoke Spanish. And so I just kind of didn't want to speak Spanish because I didn't want to be regular like everyone else. (laughs) So I thought that I was doing something interesting by studying French. And I never knew that it would become useful to me in my future career. But growing up, I loved to watch just different movies and, and see different sites. And I was fortunate to be able to travel domestically quite a bit. But I think I always just had that itch to see what was beyond my realm and my world. There's a lot to do and see in Chicago. There's a lot of international influence in Chicago, but I just wanted to see it in real life. I asked Morgan to tell me about her university experience, what she studied, where did she attend, and if she had the opportunity to study abroad. I went to undergrad, grad, and then I did grad school a second time. So for my undergrad, I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, go Illini. And in that era is sort of where I figured out that I wanted to even study international affairs, political science. I had always thought that I was going to be an attorney, frankly. And I was on the pre-law track when I got into university and quickly realized that it was just not for me. And so because I had already come in with French, I actually was able to get a pretty hefty amount of credits towards French. I decided that I would pursue an international affairs track, bringing in the foreign languages piece of things. So when I was in university and undergrad, I studied French. I also studied Arabic and Chinese. I didn't actually get a chance to study abroad, mainly because it was there were resource constraints, just to be frank. A lot of our study abroad programs were quite expensive, And they sort of started to flatten them a little bit and try to make them a lot closer to what our average tuition cost would be. But by the time that happened, I was pretty much done. But I did get a chance to travel abroad while I was in university. My graduate program that I continued at Illinois, we actually participated in this really interesting cultural exchange program where we got to go to Turkey. And that was just really eye-opening for me mainly because I was the only Black person in my graduate class. We were 10 people, all studying political science. And we all went to Ankara and Istanbul 
and Izmir and all around Turkey. And I will never forget being in the home of one of our hosts that made a fabulous dinner for us. And she was giving us as much food as possible. Like culturally, it's just appropriate to eat and eat and eat. And she, at some point you wanted to say that you're full. And finally she was like, okay, I'll stop feeding you, but now let's have tea. (laughs) And so then she come around and fills everyone's tea. You sort of politely drink the tea. I actually really don't like tea. I'm such a coffee person, but I politely drank the tea. And then once my glass was empty, she came around and filled everyone's glasses again with tea. And I was like, okay, this time I'll try to just drink half of a glass so that my cup is not empty and she doesn't feel like she has to top it up. And then she still came around and filled it, <laughs> filled it up. So I had some really interesting experiences in that sense. And I still remember her saying in front of my professor and my group of colleagues, like, I have never had an African in my home before. And so I'm just so happy to have you here. And in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm not an African, I'm Black American, but that's fine. But I just, I didn't want to take away her moment. So I was just like, okay, happy to be here. So those are some of the interesting cultural experience that I was able to have at the university level. When I was in graduate school, I was actually really fortunate because we had a program that allowed us to take a semester away. And so even though I didn't do a semester abroad, I went to Washington, D.C., it was really an opportunity for us to get away from from school. I went to school literally in the cornfields of America. And as you drive to my alma mater, you can smell the soybeans. So it's really like Midwestern, rural kind of area. Were it not for the university, there probably wouldn't be a lot there. And so I wanted to go to D.C. because I was a political scientist and I want to be sort of in the realm of where political science happens. And so I was fortunate, I was able to get an internship at the State Department. And I went to work at the State Department for a semester. And when I was there, I was really shocked, actually, because there's schools like George Washington University, where I literally had to walk through their campus to get to the State Department. And so I was like, wow, you're right here. You're sort of in the thick of it. And all of your professors and and teachers are former ambassadors or people who have held these really prestigious positions in this field. And so it was really eye-opening for me to be able to go to D.C. and just get exposed to that realm. And so when I was at the State Department, there were a couple of colleagues who were like, you have to go get experience on Capitol Hill. And I was just such a foreign policy wonk that I was like, ah, domestic politics, is that my thing? I'm not sure. And I was fortunate to be able to get an internship with a senator, uh, Senator Gillibrand, who at that time was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And so it was really cool because I sort of got to see the best of both worlds, like domestic issues like banking and transportation and how they played out for that state of New York. But then I also got to see the foreign affairs side of things, which was really my passion area. And so after I finished grad school again, Then I went back to Washington and I ended up working with USAID and the U.S. Agency for International Development. I got linked to USAID actually through my work at the State Department. I was working in UNESCO Affairs, the UN Education Scientific and Cultural Organization. And we had a program that was in support of the Millennium Development Goals at that time. And we had to go speak to someone at USAID about the Africa Education Initiative, which she was in charge of. She's since passed away. But we went to speak to her 
And we were like, we have these really lofty goals about getting children to read. And so what are you guys doing? And she's like, well, we're teaching children how to read. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? We, we've had like 20 meetings about it. And we went to UNHQ in New York and UNESCO in Paris. And we've had all these conversations. You guys are actually training teachers and helping students read. And she's like, well, yes, that's what we do. And so that was my first exposure to USAID. But it was really fascinating because I realized that we're part of the foreign policy envelope and that we work really closely with our diplomacy and defense colleagues and we're the development side of the house we call the three Ds. But I realized that we're the implementation of foreign policy. So we're not necessarily in the business of coming up with lofty ideas, but we're actually the ones executing in the field when it comes to public health or agriculture or education. And so that's sort of how I made my way into working in the USAID realm, in the international development realm. I asked Morgan to tell me more about her experience of going abroad with the Foreign Service. One of the benefits of being in the Foreign Service is that you are what the U.S. government likes to call worldwide available, which means your placement is not always your choice. You are allowed to preference, but wherever you end up is basically at at the need of the service. Wherever we need you, you must be willing to go. And so Guinea was actually a directed assignment for me where my HR colleagues in Washington were sort of figuring out where are we having trouble placing people? And this was right after the height of the Ebola epidemic. And so Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone had been hit really hard. A lot of our officers and expats left the country. And so they were trying to staff back up and there just weren't enough there. We have sort of more positions than people. And so there just weren't enough people to fill the spots in Conakry. And so when I spoke to my HR specialist, he's like, you've been all over the continent and you speak French. Great. You're going to Conakry. <laughs> so that was sort of how I was directed to go there. But in terms of just the lead up to it, one of the benefits that we get is language training. So if you are going to a country that you don't speak the language, they will register you for full time. Like that is your full time job nine to five every day to go and study that language until you can pass the test at the level that's required for your position. So to work in Conakry, it's necessary to speak French at a pretty high level. And I was fortunate because I'd already had a background in French. I actually got married a few months before going to Guinea and just sort of figuring out everything from how to rent out our house. I still have a place stateside that I rent. So figuring out how to rent out the house to really just talking to people. I was so fortunate that I had a colleague who had been in Conakry before that I could speak to and just ask like, what what are some of the things that you had challenges to find there? What did you bring? And again, we have a lot of support in terms of like packing our things, et cetera. So we had movers come to our house. We had actually we had movers go to Costco where I bought like a lot of stuff and ship that all over to Conakry. But the most interesting thing was our vehicle. So we also decided that we would take our vehicle. We had like a little Ford SUV at the time, over to Guinea. And we had to ship it overseas through 
you know, the Atlantic. And it took so much time to even get to the port of Baltimore that by the time we got to Guinea, I didn't see my car for like five months. And so we were so reliant on friends and the embassy to help us get around. But that was a big challenge, just not being mobile and not having the car. We had one child at the time, so we tried to mentally prepare her for where we were going. We kept saying, we're moving. And we actually started a tradition now that we actually still do. Whenever we go from place to place, we do some kind of cake or cupcakes, and it always has to have a green frosting or some kind of green on the cake. Because at the time where we left, my oldest daughter was only two. And so she didn't really fully understand what was happening, but she did understand that green meant go. And so we sort of told her that whenever you see these green cakes, that means it's time to go. And so we'll celebrate with your friends. We'll take pictures. We'll document. But we got to move on to the next place. And so that's sort of how we prepared to go to Conakry. So Morgan's first post with the Foreign Service was in Guinea. And I asked her to describe what it was like living and working in Guinea. Upon arriving, I will say that the one thing that we don't do a great job of is just like letting people know what to expect when you get there. It's a very lively place. There's a lot of interesting things, but in general, there's a lot of challenges. And so sanitation is a real big issue. There's a lot of trash just sort of piled up in different locations. There's a beach that at some point people were just nicknaming it Trash Beach because it could have been like a lovely beach were it not for the dumping that happened there. There's There was a sort of season of where it was rainy. And so the trash would just kind of like fill the gutters and then they would flood. It would cause flooding. So there was issues with that. When it was the dry season, people would burn the trash. And so there'd be like fires everywhere. And I'm just somebody who... If I see a fire, it like brings me pause. And so I'm like, why is that smoking? And so having to get used to things like that were really tricky. It's also super hot in Guinea. <laughs> like it's hot. It's like 90 plus degrees most of the year. So just being on the coast, the humidity is so high, it's super hot. So I just had not been fully prepared for all of those things, but I was told bring a good pair of rain boots. And so whoever told me that, thank you, because it saved me many times in like knee high levels of rain because the rain would come and then the ocean would wash up. And so you would literally be like wading through the water. And then when we arrive, we have someone who sort of sponsors us and they make sure that you have food in your house and phone credit and a cell phone and just different things so that when you get there, you're not lost. I asked Morgan to describe her experience thus far living in Uganda. I would say that I have actually really enjoyed it. I think there's a lot of interesting sort of food and culture and different things to explore here. Much like Konaki, I would say that the traffic is like my biggest headache. <laughs> because it's just bad. Like it just just stopped in a lot of places. I'm already not a great driver, full disclosure, but then driving on the opposite side, 
makes me even worse of a driver. <laughs> and then having motorbikes zooming past you, cutting you off. I just constantly feel on edge because I'm not used to sort of gauging all of those things around me and then driving on the opposite side. So Conakry was similar, difficult traffic, lots of motorbikes. There's only kind of two main streets in Conakry, and one of them had a lot of political unrest. And so then everyone would take the other street. And so somewhere that it should take you 10 minutes, you were in the car for two hours. Here, though, it's similar in that you just never know. It's really unpredictable when the traffic is going to hit. And so I think that's probably my biggest pet peeve still is just we need to come up with some carpooling system (laughs) or something. I know now with COVID, we're trying to reduce the amount of people in the car. So I guess that's not a good idea. But something that just reduces the traffic because it's insane. I will also say that I've been able to travel to different parts of the country and just see just different cultures. I guess one of the things I didn't realize is there's so many cultures and languages in the country. Even in in Guinea, it was similar. I thought that I could come with French and just communicate with everyone. And as soon as you step a few kilometers outside of the capital, people actually don't speak French. They speak Pular, they speak Susu, they speak Malinke, Mandingo. So and it, I think because of their colonial sort of past of, of pushing France away, they also rejected the French language in a lot of ways and didn't desire to, to maintain it. So there were even places that I went where I fully expected to be able to have conversations with someone and they were like, can someone translate from French to the local language so we can follow? But in Uganda, it's similar in that depending on where you go, Luganda is sort of the most well-known language, but that's only from central Uganda. If you go to the north, there's Acholi, or if you go to the southwest, there's there's so many different languages and cultures, even within what was not a huge country. And so I think that's sort of something that I didn't, I wasn't fully aware of before coming, but I'm increasingly aware of now. And I think that similar to in the U.S. where there's sort of a thought about just different things, naming and should my name be this or should it be that? And I think here people are very aware of if your name is this, you come from that place. Or if your name is that, you come from that place. And so there's a very heightened sense of like awareness of where people are from and attaching that somehow to if you're from, for example, there's the the Karamoja region, which is one of the most low in terms of development indicators in Uganda, there's people who are like, oh, the Karamajong are this way, or they have attitudes like, oh, they're this way, they're that way, or they're this way. And like never like in a positive spin usually. And so I think it's also interesting to sort of see how like cultures play out and intersect. I I knew there were many, but I mean, I'm talking like over 50 cultures and languages in a pretty medium-sized country. I asked Morgan to describe her experience and share her insights of being a Black American on the continent of Africa. I think growing up as a Black person in America, Black is Black is Black. And so we don't often like know any sort of tribal or ethnic indications or other things that we can sort of parse out We may say like, okay, you're from Atlanta, I'm from Chicago, and so that's the distinction. Um, Or you're from that neighborhood, and that's the distinction. But there's not, there's this general sort of 
sense of blackness in that we're all black. And on the continent, that's just not the case because they haven't been socialized in this very racialized society in the same way that we have. I think particularly the, the sort of initial challenges that I faced of being black in these all black spaces were just that people would still be like, but where are you from? And I'd say, I'm from Chicago. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, where are your parents from? And then I'm like, from the South, Mississippi. And they're like, no, no, no. But where are their parents from? <laughs> and so this like sense of like knowing where you're from and people wanting to know because for them, that sort of knowing who you're associated with, like who your family is, there's a value judgment on you. And so not being able to address that, I think has always been challenging. But I will say on the other side, it's been kind of a positive in that I sort of can fit in wherever. And I think I've been in a lot of spaces where they're just like, oh, you could be my cousin or you could be this. And so there's this sort of really welcoming feeling that I feel in a lot of places where folks are like, oh, yeah, just come on. You could be one of us. So I think there's sort of the both sides of that. But there's also just different dynamics that are at play. I remember having this long discussion with someone about money. And my first country that I visited in Africa was actually Ghana in West Africa. And I still remember being stunned when I saw all these Black faces on money. And people were just like, why are you like, that's just normal. And I was like, you have to realize that I never saw a Black face on money (laughs) until right now today. And they were like, oh, that's just normal. Or so seeing Black people like in leadership positions and different things, even though a lot of the countries have a really rough colonial past, I think people are just accustomed to certain things that I was just like, no, this is really strange for me. I'd also say that there's just this sense of what Black people are like. And I think just because of mass media and sort of how particularly Black women are portrayed, A lot of my interactions with Africans on the continent have been like, oh, but you're not like how I expected a Black woman to be. And so I like to sort of challenge, what do you you mean? Like, what did you expect me to be like? Well, we didn't expect you to speak in this way or we didn't expect you to look this way. Or And so some of it is due to their own limited exposure to Black Americans. But I've had colleagues that I work with in the embassy, others who have been like, oh, but you're not like I thought. And so I think there's also just a learning curve on both sides. African-American women are not the way that they're portrayed in a lot of media and movies and things like that. We're all unique. We all have diverse experiences and understandings. And so we can't be like a monolith that you just say, this is how Black women are. But I think that there's sort of that that I've experienced as well. I think I also feel like I faced a lot more gender bias and dynamics on the continent than I probably felt at home. I think at home, we're always like, I'm a Black woman, right? And so the word Black always comes first. I never say I'm a woman, oh, and then I'm Black. But then when you take race out of the equation, and you're surrounded by Black people, then you're a woman, especially for people that didn't know I was a foreigner. And so I can say that I feel like they treated me the way that they would treat a local woman and just eye-opening, just really eye-opening harassment and other things that I had not anticipated. 
I will say the last point on this is that especially being an American abroad, working for America, our job is to represent America in a sense. And a couple of my mentors recently published an article in which they said, these are all former ambassadors, Black women, who said that they never really felt American until they went abroad. Because at home, you're just home. But once you go overseas, people view you as American. They see your passport. They see where you work. They hear your, your accent. You hear your voice. And they don't, they don't necessarily say like, oh, you're Black or you're this. They're like, yeah, you're American. And you just become the American. And I don't know that I had that experience in the States. No one ever went out of their way to be like, but you're American. <laughs> it was always you're Black. And so I think that overseas, that's another sort of unique element where people are really identifying you by your nationality because it's much more common to do that. I asked Morgan to tell me more about her life as a foreign service officer. I think there's just like a lot of misperceptions that we're just like out here living the high life and rolling in dough and living, you know, our best lives. And I, I mean, we live well. I won't, I won't say that we won't, but it's definitely not that. Like, I work for USAID. We only work in, quote unquote, developing countries. So I have been in some pretty, like, austere conditions. And so it's not to say that we're, like, all living in luxury or anything like that. But I will say that we're really fortunate and that we do get a lot of support, as I mentioned when it comes to like moving, I hate moving. People I talk to that are like, oh, you're in the foreign service, you love moving. I hate moving. I hate having to organize all the stuff, label everything. And so to know that we have a team of movers that will descend on our house and pack everything for us, I love that. That's a huge benefit, especially for children. There's a lot of benefits just education-wise. Because we're away from the United States, they are trying to give us an equal opportunity at education. And because a lot of the countries in which we work don't have the same sort of quality of public schools that we may have in the States, even though the quality can be varied in the States, we usually send our kids to these international schools and the government will pay allowances for your children to go to these schools. And that's a really huge benefit for a lot of us because they pay your school fees. And in the States, you either have public school option or private school cost you quite a lot of resource. And so that's another benefit that I would say the U.S. government helps with. We definitely have a lot of support. We don't have to identify our house. For example, the embassy has a pool of houses and they assign one to us just sort of based on different factors, how big your family is, et cetera, and who, who's transitioning in or out of the country at that time. And so I will say that that's a big plus that we don't have to identify housing. Related to that, we also don't have to fund our housing. And so I don't really know how they manage all of this, but because we have a lot of officers here, but basically like our electric utilities, they take care of all of that. The lease and the payments for our house, they take care of all of that. So that's definitely a huge benefit because we don't really have a, a ton of housing costs. We do have to pay other things, internet and cable and 
house help and those sorts of things. So it's not a full package. I think a lot of people are like, oh, but they're paying for you to have like five maids and two nannies. And it's like, no, I have to pay my maid. I have to pay my nanny. I have to pay my driver. But we're fortunate to be able to have those things because certainly in the States, they would be much more expensive. So there are benefits to the general lifestyle. But what I will say is that much like anyone who's living abroad, there are certain drawbacks. As I mentioned, we move at the need of the government. And so one of the reasons that I was hesitant to join the Foreign Service at first and why I was Washington-based was because I was like, well, what if I really love Guinea and I just want to stay? And, and I'm told that after two years, I have to leave and I don't have a choice. So that's definitely a challenge. But just in general, being away from your family, there's downsides to, to living abroad that can be challenging. But in terms of just general support, we definitely have a lot of support. We have social sponsors who, when you arrive to country, they make sure you have food in your fridge, you're allowed to ask questions of them, and they can help make sure that you get the things that you need. So I'll give an example for Uganda. We were on a flight. My youngest daughter was two months old when we flew to Kampala, literally two months to the day when we got on a flight. And so she was really young. And the last thing that you want is to get to the country and then not know where can I get formula? Can I have a crib in my house? And so we do have a lot of systems in place to make sure that those things are situated before you get there. So I was able to make sure I had a crib and, and certain things when I got to, to post, which was useful. I will say that just in general, even if you're not going through the foreign service, there's different ways to be plugged in and to get support. And so for the shorter or longer term since that I did before I was a foreign service officer, we don't get the same support. So I did a six month stint in Kenya where it was just me and like my two suitcases and I had to just make it work. <laughs> so part of the benefit of transitioning to the foreign service is that they, they ship your personal effects, they'll ship your vehicle. We're in a, in a right-hand drive country. So we couldn't bring our vehicle from Conakry because we had an American specification vehicle but we were able to buy a vehicle from overseas. I think we got from Japan and we're able to ship it in. So there's definitely benefits there and that those costs are not costs that we incur. Those are costs that are incurred by the friendly taxpayer. We appreciate you. I asked Morgan, what has been her experience being pregnant abroad and raising children abroad? So for my youngest daughter, well, actually, both of my kids, I was pregnant overseas. My oldest daughter, it was in Kenya, and my youngest daughter was in Guinea. I went back to the U.S. to deliver, but I was abroad both times. The most recent one in Guinea was just such an interesting experience. Because I work with folks who support the healthcare system, I was sort of familiar with how the healthcare system worked. I know that the Ebola epidemic was really damaging to the health system in Guinea. And there were a lot of people who just sort of lost trust in the system. You had a lot of moms who may have had prenatal care needs, but they didn't want to go into a health facility because they were afraid that they may get Ebola. So you had a lot of people that just stopped going for routine things. And so we were there at a point where it was just starting to pick back up where people were 
increasing trust in the health system. But when I went for my first doctor's appointment, so we have an option to evacuate, like medical evacuation to another place, sometimes in South Africa, or you can go to UK or whatever, to just get your scans, etc. But it didn't really work well for us because we had a family with another child who was in school, my husband was working. And so I couldn't be like, okay, let's all just go to South Africa to do my scans. So I said, okay, I'll just go to a local health facility. And I remember someone told me like, this is the one to go to. This is the doctor, make an appointment. So I did all of that, but I actually remember going and I think we went at like 6.30 a.m. Like we were trying to get there super early, one, to beat the traffic, but two, just because we were told that there could be like long wait times. We get there at like 6.30 a.m., put in our stuff with the receptionist and we sit down. I don't think that I actually was seen by anyone until like 3 p.m. And it was crazy because it was one of the earlier ultrasounds where like your bladder has to be really full. I was like drinking water so much trying to make sure I was ready for the scan. And it was like hours before anyone ever called me. And so at some point, I think probably by midday, I went to the front desk and I said, hey, like I see people who are coming in after us that are being seen before us. So I just want to make sure that we're on the list. Like, what's the deal? And they were like, oh, actually, you can bring your card in a day before and reserve your place. And so I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I thought I, I just came super early to try to get my place. And they're like, yeah, all those people that came after you, they came yesterday and they put their name in the line. So that's why <laughs> you've been waiting for six hours and no one has seen you. And I was like, I wish somebody would have told me that because I could have stayed home. So yeah, just interesting things like that where I was like, oh my goodness, I just spent the whole day at this facility, like waiting to see someone. And yeah, it was just an interesting experience. In terms of the health facilities on this side, they're much better. I have had a couple of falls. I was running in town and I fell on a hill and I had to like go to the hospital. So I've experienced the health system here myself. And I will say that an interesting thing, especially from other Black colleagues, I think that there's this general perception that the health system is not, it's not ingrained with the same bias that there is in the United States. And so especially knowing the reproductive and maternal health outcomes for Black women in America, and that at the same health facility, a white woman and a Black woman have totally different outcomes, potentially. I think that's something that you don't feel as much. I think that here, I, I remember when I went to the hospital in Kenya when I was pregnant with my first daughter, and I, I was new, and I was like, okay, like, what do I do? And I need vitamins and I need this and I needed that. And the lady was like, just eat like Sukuma Wiki, which is like collard greens and, and you'll be fine. And I was like, but wait, I don't need like this and this and this and this. And she was like, people have babies all the time. Relax. Wow. So I think those, there's definitely some cultural differences in the health system. The challenge that I had going back to the States though, was that we don't necessarily go back until it's pretty close to the time that you're going to deliver. And the last thing that a doctor in the U.S. wants, especially because they're not wanting to deal with the litigious Americans, is to have someone who's like 36 weeks pregnant 
show up and be like, hi, I'm a new patient. <laughs> Cause they're like, no, we don't want that kind of liability. We don't have any clue where you've been, what you're doing, et cetera. And so because I faced that with my first child, the second one, I was like, okay, halfway through, I'll go back to the States, I'll establish a doctor and that's going to be great. I went back to the States and every single doctor I saw was like, so you live where? And I'm like, oh, I'm in, in Guinea, West Africa. And they're like, oh, don't they have malaria there? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. And they're like, don't they have Zika? And I'm like, I mean, sure. <laughs> and they're like, didn't they have Ebola? And I'm like, yes, yes to all of these. But what's your point? <laughs> and they're like, we don't want you as a patient because you're too high risk. And I was like, but people have babies in West Africa all the time. Like, what's up? So I think that was probably the biggest challenge is finding people who understood. And I was lucky. I actually found a Nigerian American doctor, bless her, who was willing to take me, who understood that babies were had in West Africa all the time. But yeah, so many doctors were just like, no, you're a risk. No, you're a risk. Why would you get on a plane and fly for 15 hours? What's wrong with you? You're pregnant. Go sit home. So anyway, I think that those are some of the interesting experiences that we've had. On the children's side, we've been fortunate to have pretty good, pretty good pediatricians around, dentists even. And there's always sort of just different ranges of available things. In Conakry, there was two dentists. There's one at the French embassy, and there was one that was like a local dentist. And so you kind of just knew these are your options, and you're able to get the care that you need. Here, we have so many options of just really good quality healthcare, people that are well-trained and, and know what they're doing. I'd say the only challenge is, I mean, we're in the capital city. When you go out, I think that's where there's a lot more resource constraints and issues and the commodities don't make their way all the way to the furthest reaches of the country. So as someone who travels quite a lot in country also, for example, in Guinea, we covered Sierra Leone as well. So I traveled quite a lot between Guinea and Sierra Leone. And it's easier to drive because I don't know if you've ever been to Freetown, but the airport in Freetown is on an island, effectively. So if I were to want to go from the neighboring country, I would have to probably fly through some other country or fly direct, but then fly and then take a boat and then get in a car and then continue. So you're literally like air, land and sea just to get to the airport. So it's easier for us to drive overland. And so I drove overland a lot. And I remember there was a time that I got like really, really sick in Sierra Leone. But again, because we have the embassy there, I was able to go in and we had a doctor and they were able to, to sort it out. So I've been fortunate that we have doctors that are more general practitioners that work with us in the embassy, but for specialized things like OBs or pediatricians, we use the local market just like anyone else. One of the perks of being a foreign service officer is that the cost of education for your children at a international school is usually covered. But one of the downsides of going to an international school is that there may be a lack or no mention of Black American history in your child's education. And so I asked Morgan to talk to me about Black American history in a box, something she had mentioned to me before. So one of the constraints, particularly with 
foreign service children is that they grow up away from home. A lot of the international schools that they're in, they may find themselves in American school, but they also may find themselves in a French school or a British school or even a Kenyan school or a Thai school, whatever the case is. And so that element of learning about U.S. history is something that doesn't happen in meaningful ways. And so really creative people who are associated with uh, this community have come up with different tools and trainings and offerings to allow U.S. history to be taught. And so some of them have U.S. history in a box that you can order and help facilitate like home learning for your children. Some have like online programs that you can do with the children. But in looking at those, particularly thinking about my children, the one thing that I think they're missing a lot out on is related to Black history and getting a rich understanding of the history of Black Americans. And so something that I've personally taken the charge to do is really deliberately look for resources and books, movies, other things that can help my children understand the Black American context. I know that this year there was this whole big discussion about Juneteenth and people finding out about Juneteenth for the first time. But being able to make sure that even though my child is not growing up in the States, she understands what Juneteenth is and why it's an important, significant thing. I also think that just knowing sort of who pioneers are is really important to me. I think I'm someone who just values history and historical perspective in general, but I have books that detail like notable Black women in history, and those have become like part of the regular bedtime routine or reading routine just to make sure that she's exposed to these different folks, because if she knows who is Althea Gibson or who's Mae Jemison or who's Katherine Johnson, then it's better for her to grow and to understand her Americanness and that Black Americans are really have been pioneers and inventors and trendsetters and just amazing. And I think sometimes when you're away from that, you don't necessarily know it. And so that's something that I've been really more deliberate about doing is just making sure that not only U.S. history is taught, but as as evidenced by recent events, U.S. history in a lot of our schools is not necessarily comprehensive. So building on top of that to make sure that Black history is included. One of the direct contributions that I've done to that in my own field actually is creating a Wikipedia page. So I developed a Wikipedia page called African Americans in Foreign Policy, that basically details the whole history of Black Americans in the Foreign Service. And so if you check out the page, you'll be able to see everything from our first like attache and people like Frederick Douglass, who a lot of people don't know, held really senior positions in the international affairs realm, all the way till today, because we're still in a position where out of our 180 or so ambassadors, only three are Black in the world right now, and none of them are women. And so there's still a lot of people who are pioneering things, even at this moment. I like to remind people that the first Black Secretary of State, the Colin Powells and the Condoleezza Rices, they weren't that long ago. These were in the 2000s. (laughs) So we're still making history in this space. I also think it's important for children who grew up around the diplomatic corps to understand the the history of 
Black people in the diplomatic corps. At some point, we were only allowed to work in certain countries. And there was sort of a Negro circuit that they called it, where they would move Black people from this country to that country to that country. And we had people who fought long and hard to make sure that we're able to be here. And so I just like to recognize those people and make sure that myself, my colleagues, and my family knows about these folks. Morgan is an author, and she has written two children's books so far. So I asked her to tell us about her books and why she was inspired to create them. I initially started looking for books that could kind of capture some of the experiences that my children were having, like traveling, etc. And so the first book I wrote was called Escape from the Baggage Claim. It's available on Amazon, Kindle. But basically, whenever we would get to a destination, my daughter would always complain at how long it took to get our bags. And so I, I literally just wrote this really lighthearted children's story about the baggage claim. And one day when her bag didn't come out, she decided to go in and figure out what was going on. It was only then that she saw that there was a troll inside <laughs> that was holding her bag. And she had to answer a series of questions to, to be able yeah. to get her bag. So that was, that was one. The most recent book that I published is called The Trip of Your Dreams. And that's available also on Amazon. It's now at Barnes & Noble and Target as well. And basically, that book was a sort of wanting to spur particularly African-American children to want to see the world. I think, as I mentioned, it was a little bit later in life that I got a passport, but I now have children who had a passport as young as one month old. <laughs> and so wanting to just put out there, these are the different opportunities for you to travel. And so this book actually follows uh, a girl who dreams about her perfect trip and sort of it takes her to all these different destinations, Sri Lanka, Turks and Caicos, Kenya, and allows her to sort of come up with what she wants to do. And her parents sort of encourage her as she goes along. On top of being a foreign service officer, a mother, a wife, and an author, Morgan is also an entrepreneur and she has a consulting company. And I asked her to tell us all about it. I also have a consulting company called Molo Global Consulting. And we effectively do writing, editing, proofreading, publishing. We're just sort of like a, a wholesale document review shop. We're really interested on the editing side and just helping people like be their best selves through writing. So we do resumes, CVs, we do internal documents, we do proposals, any sort of document that you need done, we can do it. But I would say the interesting, unique thing about us is that we have a team of consultants that have different expertise. So we have folks that are specialized in finance, policy, different sort of areas, healthcare, that can really not just provide that critical copy edit eye, but also provide like detailed technical feedback on documents. And so that's something that I had sort of already been doing it. And I realized that friends would contact me and say, hey, I need help with my CV or can you help me with this? And so I realized that I'd already been doing it. And so I just had a conversation with a couple of friends one day and they said, you need to start that as a business. I had initially thought about just doing a publishing company. And so we do have a publishing arm as well. But I thought that actually 
let's not just think about books, but what are sort of all the different types of documents that people could use and need support to develop. So that's that's sort of what we do at Molo Global Consulting. In terms of where you can find us, we have a website. It's just www.mologlobalconsulting.com. We are on all the social media, also at Molo Global Consulting. We're on Instagram at Molo Global Publishing. And yeah, that's the business. I asked Morgan to share some of her advice for other Black women who are interested in pursuing careers in international development. We definitely need to have diverse voices and opinions uh, when it comes to development interventions. The sector has just been long plagued with with well-meaning people who think that they know the best solutions for others. And you need people who are really able to immerse themselves and understand the culture and and not just sort of come in and be the the savior and say like we know what we're doing and here's what what we're going to do because that that often fails we we like to give examples of one project where there was a community well that was dug and the women in the community were having to walk like 5 or 10 kilometers to fetch water and I mean, it was just a long distance and so these well-meaning people came in and said, okay, we're going to put a well like right here in the middle of, of the town, or we'll even put a tap like on your house for you to be able to have access to water really quickly. And then those same women kept walking the five kilometers to get water. And so the organizers of this project were like, but why? Like, we just put water like at your doorstep. And it was only later with some additional analysis that they found out that the women that were walking were leveraging that time as a social time. And by putting the water source right at their home, it didn't allow them time away from their husbands or their kids for them to be able to just talk and bond. And that was their community space. And so that long walk to the water source was their time to bond. And so I I like to use that as an example because even though our own thinking may be, sure, of course you need this water right here at your home, that may not be appropriate for that particular social construct. And so you need to be inclusive. You, you don't design things for people, <laughs> design with people. You need to understand what their needs are. And so I would say that in terms of just pursuing it, the foreign service is always hiring for the most part. There's lots of opportunities. So it's really just finding the one that works for you. USAID has a specialized foreign service, and so we are not generalists in that we have sort of technical areas that we prioritize. So, and as opposed to my State Department colleagues who are political officers or economic or consular, our officers are agriculture or health or education or crisis stabilization and governance. So we have much more sort of specialty areas that are important to have expertise in. The other thing that's unique about our foreign service is that you it generally requires a master's degree in that field. So if you want to be a health officer, you need to have a master's in public health. If you want to be an education officer, you have to have a master's in some related field. So that's also something that I think is unique, but I, it's because we have these specialties and we really are ingrained in the program development implementation that you have to have some sort of rigorous background. So I've known people who are like, I really want to come. I'm fresh out of undergrad. Maybe I did the Peace Corps. 
we have a lot of return Peace Corps volunteers because they're already used to being in environments that are austere and they've worked in developing quote unquote countries. And so I think that that's also an interesting avenue for a lot of folks. I personally didn't do the Peace Corps, but I know a lot of my colleagues who did and said that it was really valuable for them to build on that experience um, working on this side. But we also have a lot of partners. We don't do everything ourselves. So there's non-for-profit organizations, non-governmental organizations, philanthropies, other donors that we partner with. So there's ways to get involved in development that don't necessarily require you to work with or for the U.S. government. So it's really just up to you to identify what sort of sector you're interested in and what you want to do. The one thing I will say is that don't just say I like helping people and I want to do good things in the world because that's what all of us want, right? You have to have some idea of a particular area that you're interested in, in delving into. And I'm, I'm happy to be a resource to folks that are interested. Um, and I have a lot of colleagues who would be willing to share their experiences to anyone who's interested in joining. I asked Morgan to describe her definition of wellness and how her life abroad has influenced that definition and practice of wellness. So I definitely think that wellness is just sort of holistic. Do you feel good? Are you spiritually fed? Are you physically fit and and sort of being your best self? And so I definitely think that I've been able to expand on my idea of wellness. I would say that for me, especially as a mom, if my family is good, I'm good. So I'm always making sure that they're well and taking care of them. But for me, I'm a big meditation fan. My husband can tell you that I love to meditate because just taking time to pause. I'm someone who has to be involved in politics and watch the news and understand sort of everything that's going on. And sometimes it can be a lot and it can be stressful and you sort of have to figure out do I want to be aware of everything that's going on? Because then I'll just be constantly enraged. Or do I need to take time for myself and just relax? So I actually meditate quite a lot. I love to cook. That's something that helps me really balance. I actually have another Twitter page that I run called M3 Bites that is all about cooking and food because I do recipes and I love like trying other people's recipes and like posting them. So that's something that I also do to just sort of keep myself well. I love traveling, honestly, as a wellness thing. And because I'm posted overseas, it doesn't mean that I'm stuck in one place. When we're not in COVID time, I still like to travel. I like to travel in country and up country. We're so fortunate here to have Victoria and the Nile River and other beautiful places to visit and see Like that I just like to kind of get away, get out of the city, get away from the hustle and bustle. And that's really helpful to my own mental health and just being able to process everything that's going on. I think when you do have a profession, you have a business, you have family, it can be a lot. For me, just being well is knowing yourself, knowing when you're stressed, knowing if something's really bothering you. And there's been days in recent times with everything that's been happening stateside, I've had to be like, I am taking off of work for these next few days. Please do not call me because I just need time. And so just being able to do that and know when that's necessary is something that 
I would say is, is part of my definition of wellness. Thank you so much, Morgan. I think this has been such an interesting interview. And if you want to keep up with Morgan, you can via social media. You can find my company, Molo Global Consulting, like I said, just at M-O-L-O globalconsulting.com, all on social media, all the different outlets, Twitter, LinkedIn, Molo Global Consulting, Instagram at Molo Global Publishing. Those are our main sort of channels that you can find us. I'm also just personally on LinkedIn, so you can reach out to me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Make sure you are following the podcast via Instagram because that is where I post a lot of announcements that are happening for the podcast and it's where I go live by myself or with guests. And so I will be going live again this Sunday. I just had an amazing IG live with Barbara, going global with Barbara, talking all about how to get a job abroad. If you will remember, she is the international talent acquisition specialist. And we just had an amazing conversation on IG. So if you haven't checked it out, go ahead to Flourish in the Foreign IG and watch that. We did have some technical difficulties, so it's in two parts, but it's still really amazing. Go check that out. And of course, check out the bonus episode, How to Get a Job Abroad. It's available across all of the social media bios and the resource page. And if you are interested in leveraging your talents and expertise into an viable and sustainable online business so that you can be not only professionally fulfilled but financially abundant while you pursue your thriving life abroad definitely check me out I'm a business strategist and I work with Black women and women of color, helping them not only get clear, but also to help them execute, to help women who already have businesses scale them so that they can do what they want to do where they want to do it around the world. If you think that you are ready to take your skills and your talents and convert them into just an amazing business that gives you the power and the flexibility to do what you want to do wherever you want to do it, let's chat. My calendar is still open for discovery calls. So go to my website at www.christinejobe.com. Let's chat. Let's see if we're a great fit. And if we are, let's get started because 2021 is coming and even though 2020 has been a year, things are not magically going to get better or different just because the clock strikes 12. If you're interested in going abroad and having a business, it takes some work, it takes some cultivation, and it takes strategy. So let's start the new year, not with a wish and a hope, new year, new me, but with a plan and a business to take you where you want to go. Again, check me out at www.christinejobe.com. And if you're thinking about starting a podcast or you already have a podcast, but you're not really sure how to make this whole podcasting thing work, I get it. I was there too. I launched this podcast in May and now I have over 8,000 downloads and it has opened up so many different doors. It's amazing. 
but I didn't do it all alone. So I would highly recommend you to check out the WOC Insiders Podcaster membership. I'm a member of this membership. And if you want the cheat codes, you don't want to have to do everything by trial and error. I would highly suggest joining the WOC Insiders Podcasters membership. It is really, really helpful, full of amazing resources, but also full of just amazing women who are really about this podcasting thing. They're going to drop some serious podcasting game that's going to help you take your podcast to the next level. So if you're interested in joining, please use the Flourish in the Foreign affiliate link. It is at no extra cost to you, but it's another way to support this here podcast. You can find it on the resources page of the Flourish in the Foreign website and of course in the bio section across all social media channels. Thanks to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this podcast. If you're interested in having some custom music for your next project, definitely hit him up. I'll leave all of his information in the show notes. Okay, that is it. Have an amazing week and see you next week. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I will say this. In Singapore, I've never met anyone, young taxi drivers who complain about politics. And that's interesting to me. You can go to any, like in the UK, and you sit in a taxi, and if the taxi driver is willing to talk to you, he'll talk to you about Brexit, and he'll talk to you about immigration, you know, and sometimes their opinions are trash, but they will say them, right? Over here, I've never heard anyone complain. and. I can see why Singaporeans, for the most part, live really good lives.